Welcome to Aircrew Interview, I'm Mike King, your host, and in this episode we chat with former F-111A and F-Aardvark pilot Carl Gruner. In episode 1, Carl chats about getting selected to fly the F-111, what it's like working with Wizzles, flying at Red Flag, getting selected to fly at RAF Lakenheath, getting bounced by Phantoms, and much more. So if you like what we do here and want to see more of our content and would like to support us, you can do that by donating monthly at patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview. Thank you and enjoy. So Carl, when did you first become interested in aviation? Uh, I was very, very young, probably about six or seven years old. And, uh, you know, that's the best I can remember, but I always... Not only specifically in military aviation, like my mother, when I told her I wanted to be a pilot, I was probably a say, six or seven. And she said, oh, you want to be an airline pilot, right? And I said, no, I want to, I want to fly fighter jets. You know? <laughs> so that, that's a vivid memory for me that uh, I was already pretty set on fighting, uh, on flying fighter jets. So, And, uh, you know, I, I grew up in France. So at that point, I might have had the option, and I had dual citizenship, so I could have gone in the French Air Force, actually. Uh, but I eventually ended up deciding to move to the United States after graduating from high school in France. So then I went to college in the United States, once through ROTC, a Reserve Officer Training Corps. I got my commission that way uh, at the University of California, Berkeley, and decided to go. You know, obviously, I had to opt at this point for U.S. citizenship. Um, and that's the way I ended up in the U.S. Air Force. But so again, a uh, very young age. Uh, my grandfather on my mother's side uh, was very interested in aviation for some reason. He was a farmer, so there was no <laughs> obvious reason why he would love airplanes, but he did. And I guess somehow it trickled on to me. Because my dad, again, my dad was Army, um, but he had nothing to do. You know, he was like a helicopter pilot or anything. He had really nothing to do specifically with aviation. So. It is what, <laughs> somehow, it's one of those things, you know. So, yeah, like, if you could just explain or talk about some of the aircraft you started training on and essentially what aircraft you were first selected to fly. The way the program worked with ROTC is the first thing that happens is in, the, in your senior year in the college, uh, the Air Force pays for 25 hours of uh, instruction on a local aero club. So, I, you know, I, I lived in the San Francisco Bay Area at the time. And so I went, uh, you know, like once a week, a couple of times a week, actually, to a local aero club. And I got 25 hours in a Cessna 150 or 152, uh, including one flight in the aerobatic version where we did the spin recoveries and, you know, things like that, that you couldn't necessarily do in the regular model. And then uh, after that, I waited to go on active duty with the Air Force. And I reported to Reese Air Force Base in Lubbock, Texas which no longer exists. It's no longer a, an Air Force base. It was closed in the early 90s, um, but um, started flying the T-37 uh, at the time, because uh, this is 1979 we're talking about, and I graduated in 1980. So first phase T-37s, uh, and then everybody at that time proceeded to the T-38. So I got about 100 hours in the T-37, and then uh, T-38, we get about 120, 130 hours, something like this. Uh, at, the at the time, everybody, all the students in the class went to the T-38. You know, I, I'm pretty sure you know now it's no longer the case. Now the, the transport and, and tanker and bomber pilots go to the, uh, 
to the T1, I guess. Um, but uh, at the time, I really went to T38. I did end up getting my fighter qualification, uh, which is about, I'd, I'd say about half the class, I got, got fighter qualified. And uh, then it was a matter of, you know, trying to get the aircraft that you wanted. And my first choice really was the F-15. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time in 1980, there still weren't that many available and the F-16 was even fewer. I ended up, you know, going to the F-111. So. So that's uh, that's how you know, and it was. I put that as my second choice, kind of as a safety thing. I really would have preferred to fly the F4, uh, you know, if I didn't get an F15. Uh, and the, the two F15s in my class went to the like the top grads, you know, and I was pretty high, but not quite high enough. So <laughs> uh, F4 would have been cool uh, as a classic aircraft, uh, but th- there were too many other students that wanted to fly that. So just to edge my bet, I put F111, and that's what I got. So, and I don't, re- no, I don't regret it. It was great. So, absolutely, it's not a bad aircraft to be selected. No, 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 no. <laughs> it was fantastic. So. so, what are your initial thoughts on the aircraft? On the F one eleven? Yeah. Well, first of all, its size. You know, I mean, it's an F one eleven, so it, it is a fighter technically. Uh, but um, you know, I, we all know it's more like a, a bomber. Although, yeah, not a bomber like a B fifty two or a, a B one, you know, or B two. It's much smaller. It's, it's. I guess in that sense, it's more fighter size. And the aircraft was stressed to over seven G, seven point three three Gs. So, which most in most missions you never pulled close. You, you only pulled like four to five Gs on most missions. Uh, but it was stressed to that. Uh, was not very maneuverable for a fighter, uh, or you know, if you want to consider it a, an, an F-series aircraft, uh, but very fast. Um, so it was pretty impressive uh, size-wise, you know, for one thing. The side-by-side seating, of course, you know, T-37. That's also you had a side-by-side seating, so you know, it was it was somewhat familiar from that that perspective. But of course, now the pilot it was in the left seat. The weapon systems officer, a wizard, was in the uh, right seat. And uh, it was, uh, to me, even as a channel, I, I mentioned I was interested in aviation from a very young age. And so I, I had, you know, I had read a lot about the F-111 and its controversial history, you know, had a lot of teething problems during development, but eventually matured into a very capable aircraft for its role, you know, uh, basically low-level, all-weather penetration and bombing. And... Uh, so I, I was very happy. I thought, I, to me, it's like a really neat-looking aircraft. I, I just like it. You know, some people, some people <laughs> might, might think otherwise, but particularly the wings back, it just looks cool. I, I don't know. So, um, so I was I was very happy to report to Mountain Home Air Force Base in Idaho for training, and I ended up staying. The training was about six months, uh, and but I ended up staying at Mountain Home to go to the operational squadrons there. Um, so I spent uh, two, a little bit more than two and a half years at Mountain Home. Brilliant. So, Carl, yeah, let's talk a bit about your ground training and working with a whistle. Were you always picked to be with one person or were you mixed? Well, we did have an assigned student whistle for the whole duration of the class. However, when we first started, uh, well, in ground training, it doesn't really matter. You you know, you just everybody's together in the, in the <laughs> class. And I think our class had three pilots and three whistles, if I remember well. It's been a long time, but something like that. You know, it's not a huge number of students, but uh, um, so we had academics together and then uh, simulators. You tended to be 
with your assigned student crude whistle. However, you know, your first flights in the 111 were, were, were an experienced instructor pilot. And then the, for the next few flights after that were with experienced instructor whistles. And then more towards the end of the course, which, you know, again, lasted six months or so, you did fly quite a bit with your assigned uh, student whistle. So, you know, as part of a two ship or four ship of F-111s, uh, you'd be the wingman, uh, one of the wingmen in that formation with your assigned whistle. Now, later on, when you go to operational squadron, again, you were crewed with a primary whistle. But even though they tried to schedule you with that whistle most of the time, uh, and they did, you know, they did a pretty good job. But you did fly with a lot of other people as well, you know, so. And was the 111 uh, a desirable aircraft to be selected to? And how did the other crews in this training period, were there was a lot of mourning and groaning, thinking, oh, I, want, I wish I went to that one, or did you just get no, on with it? No, everybody liked, everybody liked the airplane. Mm -hmm. Nobody was complaining, for sure. No, they <laughs> were very happy to just be doing something exciting. You know, I was a fighter, and again, again you know, fighter, uh, radio bomber role, but it did, you know, it, it acted like a fighter in certain ways. I mean, people don't know that, but it, the airplane was stressed to 7.3 Gs, and I pulled 7 Gs quite a few times in the F-111. Now, most people never do that. Now, you wore G-suits. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the whistles were in the habit of not even plugging the, the G-suit, <laughs> which actually was not, uh, you know, I mean, typically in a mission, you never pull more than about five, you know, uh, on, a, on an air-to-ground mission. But um, I pulled seven a few times. You just couldn't sustain seven for very long, right? It would bleed off energy so fast that uh, you would do it for a few seconds and then you'd get to an airspeed where it would slow down that the, you were, it had a very high corner velocity. So the, 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 the speed at which you could put seven Gs was pretty high compared to other uh, types of fighter planes. So, mm -hmm. so you couldn't sustain it, that's for sure. And let's talk, well, if you can remember it, your first flight in the Aardvark, what was that like? Yeah, it was pretty exciting. So, of course, I was with an instructor pilot, and it's a pretty big aircraft. You know, you're coming from the T-38. Uh, you know, and of course, I flew the T-38 in the undergraduate pilot training, and then also at the, what they call at the time, it was a, a lead-in fighter uh, training lift. And now it's called IFF, Introduction to Fighter Fundamentals, but same thing. So you fly the T-38 as well, you know, but... And then, uh, so, you know, which is a relatively small airplane, and then you go to the big F-111, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's different, it's very impressive. Uh, the acceleration on the A model wasn't all that impressive. It's comparable to the T-38, I guess. I mean, because it's a, it's a big airplane. And so, um, the, the airplane, the faster it goes, the faster it accelerates, which is kind of counterintuitive. But, you know, on takeoff, the, the, the acceleration was not all that impressive. Again, I'd, I'd say it's comparable to the T-38, uh, maybe even a little less in the A model. And then when, later on, when I flew the F model at Lake and Heath, that has 40% more thrust than the A model. So the, the acceleration was more impressive on that one. There was a significant difference. Yes, it's it's yeah, it, uh, you could you could tell. Uh, although even in the F model, it was nowhere close to let's say an F-16's acceleration. But of course, yeah. Still, it, it was it was it was good. You know, particularly if you took off a couple of times, they took off with a light fuel load, um, and that got a pretty good thrust to weight ratio, and uh, you could climb pretty steep right after takeoff.
So. And was it correct in saying that, did the A model have the same engine as the F14 at the time? Yeah, it's you know slightly different version, but yes, TF30, um, you know, Pratt & Whitney TF30 turbofans, and that is exactly right. Um, so, but even in the F111, like they, they all had TF30s, but they were different versions of the, of the TF30s. As I, as I mentioned, the F model had, had by far the most powerful. They had about 25,000 pounds of thrust each. The, the A model only had about 18,500 per engine. But like the, there, were, there was also the D model, the E model. The, well, the Strategic Air Command at the time had the FB-111. They all had TF-30s, but they were all slightly different versions with varying levels of thrust and, and, and you know, minor differences. But, uh, mm -hmm. um, so, but yes, it was the same engine as the F-14. So at the time when you were flying the A model um, and going through your flying training, would you be practicing dropping live weapons and what could it actually carry at this time? Yeah, occasionally. You know, most of the time when we went to the range, we carried these little, you know, BDU thirty three or Mark one hundred six training bombs. They only weighed like a few pounds. You know, <laughs> and the the Mark one hundred six were painted orange, and they are re they simulated the retarded weapon. You know, so weapons that are that have air brakes or parachute. You know. Um, and actually, they also simulate, uh, you know, nuclear weapon ballistics in, in, you know, in some way. I mean, it's, it's a rough replication. And then the BDU-33s were the slick bombs. They were heavier and they were painted blue. And those were replicating the ballistics of like a slick uh, Mark 82, roughly, you know, bomb. Now, but we did drop, on occasion, we did drop um actual ordnance now uh, uh, when i say actual ordnance so there were two kinds there's the actual you know real bombs um and those typically were painted green with yellow bands around the nose so that uh, denotes the fact that these are live weapons but that was pretty rare now I, we did drop some occasionally but that that really wasn't very often now later on you know in operational squadron I, I did go to red flag and and we can talk about that and did drop more uh, live weapons, but most of the time what we carried were weapons that replicated the exact shape and weight of the actual weapon, but they were painted blue and they were inert, so they were just full of concrete, you know. And so, but from from the ballistics point of view, they were exactly the same from the handling of the aircraft because they weighed the same and had the same shape, you know, same drag. It perfectly replicated carrying live ordnance. The only thing is, that when they hit the ground, they didn't blow up, right? So. <laughs> Yeah, um, but uh, so so that was we did carry those quite a, a few times it, in in the training squadron. I don't remember doing it very often, maybe a couple of times uh, later on in the operational squadrons that happened way more often. Mm -hmm. So how did you find working with a whistle and would there be com uh, continuous communication between the both of you while yes. on a flight? I, I really liked it. Now, some of it depending on the whistle, you know, some, some of them were easier to work with than others. Um, but uh, overall, though, great experience. Uh, I don't remember, you know, working with one that was so bad that I, that I would go to the squadron commander and say, I never want to fly with this person ever again. Uh, so, no, that never happened. But, uh, you know, some, I remember getting along. My crude whistle, when, once I got to the operational squadron, was a, a, a name Kurt Supan. And uh, he was very, very good. And he, I would let him fly the airplane quite a bit. He actually, 
he ended up flying the F-16 before I did because he got selected at some point. He was very, he was so good. He got selected to attend pilot training, um, you know, and become a pilot. And then he got an F-16 out of that. And so a couple of years before I ended up in the F-16, he was already flying F-16. But um, so I, with him, I got along really well. We, we had a great relationship. It was fantastic. Loved it. And yes, there was a lot of communication. Now, after a while, you know, after you get used to the whistle, you know, maybe a little less because you kind of almost knew what the other person was thinking or doing. Uh, but I'll say this much during um, terrain following radar flights at night or in bad weather, the communication was critical. Mm. And, uh, you know, in, in some cases, I mean, you, you know, there, there, there have been accidents, you know, in fact, you know, fatal accidents in the F 111 um, because of that system. So it was very critical that the communication between the, the crew members was uh, continuous. And basically, most of the communication in that case was the pilot comparing, the, the pilot was responsible for the terrain following radar scope and monitoring that. And the whistle had his head mostly in the, the attack radar. So the, the, the terrain following radar would sweep vertically in mm -hmm. front of the aircraft and basically follow the profile and automatically fly the airplane up and down uh, over the mountains. And then the whistle had the attack radar, which swept uh, horizontally. But in case the terrain following radar had a malfunction, the whistle could tell, you know, also in a, in a way, in a less accurate way, but accurately enough that he could tell if we were getting too close to a mountain and that if we continued, we would impact. And basically, you know, if you're below a peak, the attack radar would start having a black cone behind it because the radar cannot see on the other side mm -hmm. of the mountain. So the return is just this black cone. And if the cone gets getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, that means you're below the peak of that mountain. And so if the terrain following radar, um, typically one of the key calls was when we got like about two miles uh, which was only like 15 seconds, you know, before impact, before the mountain, mm -hmm. because we were going typically eight miles per minute. Um, so at two miles, the the whistle would say, you call two miles, uh, when you would say that the, the, you know, the peak of the mountains at two miles, and then we should start pretty soon seeing the, the terrain following radar react to that and, and bring the aircraft up to, to pass over the ridge or over the, the peak. And of course, we did that mission, you know, that was our primary mission. So we did it quite a lot, you know, compared to later on the F-16, the, pro the proportion of night flying in the F-111 was quite high. It wasn't quite half, but it's probably about 40% our flights were at night. So let's talk about the wing sweep and how did you find this function? And also, I've always been, I've always wondered. So, when the terrain following radar is engaged, do you still have to manually sweep? Do you still have to keep all yes. your right? Yeah, it's always manual. It's not like the F-14 at all. Um, and a tornado is the same way. You know, it's uh, it's manual. So uh, the the front, you know, the 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 where well, the wings. Forward, it was 16 degrees uh, at the leading edge uh, angle. All the way back is 72 degrees. You had detent, so there was a lever on the left side of the cockpit, uh, which was only available to the pilot. Uh, and that, what what we used, you know, forward on the lever was the wings forward, and back was the wings back. 
And there were a couple of detents, uh, one at 26 degrees, uh, which was mostly like 26 degrees was our more like cruise, no long range endurance, uh, best uh, wing sweep. And then, then one at 54, and the one at 54 is important because under certain configuration of ordnance on the wings, if you had ordnance on the inner pylons, you know, the, so the pylons keep aligned with the the aircraft no matter what the wing sweep is, so they, they swivel. Now the inner pylons were close enough at the 72 degrees that you could actually crush, the, you know, have the weapons impact the fuselage if you had, depending on what your load was. So for certain weapons configuration, you were limited to the 54 degree maximum sweep. And so there was a detent to block it. And you had to manually, you know, push a, a different button to override that. Right. So typically on most mission, we'd rarely go beyond 54 anyway. Uh, although there, you know, there was exception when we go supersonic at red flag, you know, exiting the target all the way back to 72, going 1.3, 1.4 Mach right on the deck. And, but typically like the 45 degree angle, there was no detent for 45, but 45 was kind of a very good compromise when you were flying at the 480 to 540 knots at low altitude, 45 degree angle was, uh, most of the time that's what we used. Uh, but yeah, let's talk about your first uh, frontline squadron and where was this based and what kind of flying would you be doing? So the first operational squadron, I was still, so I went to training in the 389th training squadron at Mountain Home and then I stayed at Mountain Home and just moved across the street, so to speak, to a different squadron, the operational squadron, which was the 390th at the time. And I think I mentioned the 390th, after about a year that I was in a squadron, they became the first EF-111 squadron. And I was not transitioning to the EF, so they moved me, and this is not even across the street, it was like the building next door, it was the 391st <laughs> fighter squadron, a Tiger squadron, bold Tigers. Uh, and now they still exist, they're flying F-15Es now, Mountain Home, but uh, uh, so I, I spent another year in the 391st uh, as an operational crew member. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was still a young lieutenant, uh, but, uh, still, you know, went to red flag and did some, some pretty cool, you know, deployments to, uh, to Florida, to uh, MacDill Air Force Base to do some, some exercises, participating in a number of, of large exercises. Uh, it was very exciting for a brand new guy, you know, a brand new lieutenant. Um, and, uh, one of my most memorable missions my, was my first red flag mission, which was just amazing. Uh, oh, you have to share that then. Yeah, well, now we did have an orientation sortie, you know, when we first showed up to, to just show us the range, which, you know, so it was not an operational, you know, technical mission. It was just kind of flying around and, you know, like, don't go in Area 51 kind of thing, because that's, that's right, you know, and say, well, do not go in that box because bad things will happen. Okay, okay. Um, and, uh, but then the first operational tactical mission that I was sent on, I was supposed to be a wingman in a two ship of F-111s. And we get to the end of runway last check before takeoff. And my leader has a problem and says, I have to abort. I can't, I can't go fly this airplane. There's a, I can't remember what the exact problem was. And, you know, like in the F-16 later, that would have meant the wingman aborts at the same time. Not in the F-111. They said, yeah. you go. I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> now, I did have my, you know, my, my, my good Wizzo friend, Kurt Supan, who, who was an experienced Wizzo. He was, he was experienced. So, 
you know, I felt okay. So at least he knows what he's, <laughs> what he's doing. But um, it was pretty exciting. So, you know, we took off as a single ship. Uh, not granted, yeah, single ship. We were part of a large package with, mm-hmm. you know, RF4s, F-15 escorts, uh, you know, uh, other F-111s that, that were later, but in different flights, some F-4s. I can't remember the, the whole composition. Probably some F-4Gs, wild weasels. In any event, I've got a TOT, you know, a time on target to me, and that's what we're going to do. You know, we hit the tanker first, and then we we ingress, you know, on time. And uh, but I'm I'm by myself basically. You know, again, there are other airplanes in the area, but as far as I'm concerned, I'm going to be striking my target at my time. And and that's what happened. But uh, it was, you know, because we were looking for threats. There, of course, it was red air trying to get us, and we were flying really low. Um, and uh, and so because I was, uh, you know, so uh, I guess a little nervous about it. I went, I had my load was six BDU 33s. So you know those those practice bombs, not the big bombs, but just uh, you know. And I was supposed to ripple them like it's, uh, it's like 0.2 second interval. So it took like one second to drop the whole thing. And I, I failed to hold the pickle button long enough, right? So the pickle button is on the on the stick, and it's a red button, and you push, and it releases the bomb, assuming you have the master arm on and, and, and you know the right weapon selected. So instead of dropping the six, I think I only dropped like two bombs <laughs> because I didn't hold it long enough to you know to uh, in my excitement, I thought okay I'm done you know and I and I start wearing. So so we know but we noticed that. And so we reattacked. So I went around and came back and dropped the rest of the bombs. Uh, but that was kind of exciting. Now it was all planned that you, you did have a couple of minutes for a reattack. So you know that wasn't. And then on the egress. Now when I hit my TOT, I had been preceded by maybe a minute or two by an RF4 pre-strike recce. On the way back, we caught up with him, and he was going supersonic, like maybe 1.1 Mac, but we were going so fast, we were going like 1.4 Mac. And it sounds like a lot, but you have to remember, Nellis is at about 5,000 foot uh, elevation, so it's not like sea level. Like sea level, the, the max speed was really about 1.2, but at 5,000, you could get to about 1.4. And so even though this RF-4 is already going supersonic, we're catching up with him, and we're just passing him like he's not standing still, but like, like it was like easily. I mean, it wasn't even close um, because we're going like a couple hundred miles per hour faster than he is, you know. And I was, and we're like at you know 300 feet on the deck. If that, I don't remember if I was checked out to 100 feet low altitude at the time. I don't think so. I think I was still limited to 300 at, on that mission. And then you also flew um, in Lake and Heath, as you mentioned before, you flew the F model. Can you tell us about this and your experiences of flying there? Yeah, my three years in the UK were some of my best years ever. I lo- First of all, I loved living in the UK. It was great. So, um, and then Lake and Heath was a gr- awesome base. The F-111F again had a couple of major differences compared to the A model. I already mentioned the extra thrust, which was very significant and, and very good. It didn't translate in that much more of a maximum speed, and that had to do with the fact the air intakes were bigger, so the 
the the the frontal area of the airplane was a little bit bigger, uh, but it did ex- it did translate to much faster acceleration, particularly at the lower speeds. So, uh, and the other thing, the big difference, it had the pave tack system. So this was one of the very first, wasn't the first because already in Vietnam, you know, there were uh, infrared laser targeting pods in service. Um, you know, early generations, they were pretty crude compared to what we have now. But the pave tack was was the first one that was quite sophisticated, very, very good infrared picture. Uh, and you, that allowed us to self-laze um, laser-guided bombs. So uh, in the A model, we actually occasionally, now I don't remember doing it myself, but you know, occasionally we would carry laser-guided bombs, but you had to have somebody else lace for us in the A model. We did not carry a pod ourselves. Um, now the technology at the time meant that to get a really good picture and you know good performance from a laser targeting pod like this. It, the pod was actually pretty big, and and what they did in the F models, they put it in the weapons bay area. So it sacrificed the weapons bay. You could no longer carry weapons in the weapons bay, which we didn't do anyway in the A model. It, you know the the strategic air command version, the FBs did that, but we didn't in the tactical world. Uh, and the pave tack was was pretty big, and it, it rotated, so you you could stow it when you weren't using it and then and then the, the tracking ball would, would rotate out and then it, you could slave it uh, basically underneath the belly of the airplane you know 360 uh, underneath and that allowed us to to guide our own laser guided weapons which was very very useful uh, so that was uh, that was pretty exciting because that was something new for me and uh, and of course flying in the uk was also quite different than in the us you know in the us you have these these pre-planned routes uh, that you have to kind of stick. No, these are corridors, so you can maneuver inside the corridors. And then sometimes there are military training areas and military operating areas, MOAs, where you can more or less do what you want. But in the UK, you could fly, you know, unless it was like, uh, you know, uh, cities. I mean, there, there were there were areas where you couldn't fly. But other than that, you could fly everywhere else, you know. So we, we fly typically from Lake and Heath, because of the range of the aircraft, our favorite training area was over Scotland, you know, because it was there were fewer populated areas. Uh, there were there was there were more mountainous terrain, so it was more realistic training for us. It was more challenging. Uh, we had uh, the opportunity to fly at night uh, there in the, in the Highlands uh, restricted area. Um, so we went to Scotland quite, quite often. I, I can't tell you how many Loch Ness runs I've done. It's like, uh, you know, I don't know, dozens. <laughs> uh, but uh, that was one of the favorite, you know, routes is to go fly over the Loch Ness. And, and then we used, we, we used the, the various ranges, you know, everywhere in the UK. There were, I remember, that I think it was like six or seven ranges that we used regularly, you know, in the Wash area. Uh, along the uh, east coast, uh, there were a couple of ranges, and there were a couple of ranges up in Scotland. Uh, I think uh, close to Lossy Mouth, there was a, a Rose Hardy range. I remember that one because that was the one range that was operated by a civilian contractor, and uh, he was he was quite friendly to us as far as giving us good scores. <laughs> but uh, uh, so he had a good reputation, and we liked to go to that range. But uh, so it was. Uh, that's very interesting. You know, you, you would plan your routes uh, and uh, fly. You could fly at 250 feet everywhere, you know, and some areas were down to 100 feet, although um, typically that was 
that was reserved for the RAF, uh, you know, but uh, still it was, it was excellent flying. And occasionally we'd fly on the continent. So yeah. I flew, no, I flew like uh, over France, over the, we would use some of the bombing ranges in the Netherlands. Um, so, and in Germany also, you know, um, so no, it was exciting times. And I would say the range of the aircraft allowed us to go pretty far from base. So there was uh, uh, excellent souvenirs of that, of those three years of flying in the UK. And did you ever fly or train with the RAF? Like, I, did you get bounced by phantoms, tornadoes, anything like that? Can you tell us a few stories there, Carl? Of course, of course, you get bounced by... Now, in the 111, of course, if you get bounced, yeah, well, you, you were allowed to do a defensive turn or something, but you couldn't. And then you'd rock your wings saying, hey, basically knock it off, because um, our, our you know, way to get away would be speed, but you couldn't go supersonic at low altitude over the UK. And, you know, that, that, that was not. So we were limited in that sense. Um, and so... Um, Eventually, they, they did put AIM-9s, um, you know, but although it wasn't something that was commonly done, but they, they did say, okay, well, you can carry AIM-9s, but I actually never did. So we didn't have like a defensive armament. We did, had no gun. So we were pretty limited in that sense. Not, a couple of times in the WASH ATA, when the weather was bad at low altitude, you know, I would maybe doing an instrument ride or something, but I'd go to the WASH ATA and do some handling, you know, just by myself. Um, because in between cloud decks, so like the you no know, you couldn't go out because the weather was just too bad. Mm-hmm. And um, the uh, you know that bounce, I'd be bounced by a kind of Royal Air Force F4, <laughs> and then you know for me I was pretty aggressive. You know I, I know of course I knew I had no chance, but I would engage into some maneuvering. Uh, just to practice my defensive, you know, like gun breaks and things like that. And even starting with a neutral, particularly at 20,000 feet, you know, like if we were closer to the deck, maybe I, I would still wouldn't have a chance. But, and I'm sure this, this F4s, it's only happened a couple to three times, but they probably didn't even have to use afterburner, you know, but after like less than a minute, they'd be on my tail, you know, and there was nothing I could do about it. But so, you know, there was never any doubt that, um, and I, I never was engaged in that kind of, you know, turning fight by like an F-16 or something that would have been not even funny. But uh, even against an F-4, uh, yeah, no, it wasn't, it wasn't close. Yeah. Yeah. The aircraft just was designed for that. It just wasn't, it wasn't. The, our, you know, in the real world, what you do if you were bounced at that altitude, you would have to get down to the deck as soon as possible. You know, yeah. full afterburner, go down supersonic, maybe you have to jettison your weapons, you know, maybe. Hopefully not, but if you have to, you have to, and then go supersonic and try to escape that way. Mm-hmm. That was basically what we had to do. And so, you probably have many, but can you maybe share a few memorable stories from your time on the F-111? Well, so that, that one uh, from the, my first right flag mission was, but uh, it was very memorable. But other than that, uh, what you know, one of the things we already enjoyed when I was at Lake Anith as well was flying in Turkey. Uh, at uh, Angelic Air Base, you know, and using the Konya range. Mm-hmm. That was, all, that was all, always very enjoyable because, again, in that 50-mile circle around Inserlik, we kind of we could do whatever we wanted in there. Well, I mean, within a reason. Obviously, you couldn't go supersonic. Um, uh, you could over water. You could go supersonic. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was uh, you had basically from ground to 50,000 feet up. Uh, wow. And so... 
uh, unlimited. Uh, unlike in the UK, where you know twenty four thousand five hundred was the start of the the positive control area, so the PCA, which you have to be under radar control above that. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, at Inshallah, you could go up to fifty thousand, uh, which was our limit anyway. I mean, the airplane could go fast, could go higher than fifty thousand technically, but because we were not wearing pressure suits, there was a you know a, a restrictions just because of that. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, as far there's a lot of memorable stories, but one one of the things that uh, that was interesting about the F one for one thing was the ejection capsule, which was gonna. Now, I never ejected, but I knew a few people who did, you know. So that was uh, that was interesting, uh, and then um, the the fact that uh, the capsule could could float, you know, in case you ejected over water, that meant that we never had to wear the the immersion protective suits like many pilots have to do like oh, if they're going to fly for any length of time over cold water so that was that was something that was really excellent about the f-111 um, is the capsule allowed you to eject at supersonic speeds if necessary without dying because typically on a regular ejection seat i don't care how good the seat is if you eject supersonic you're probably going to die i mean there there has been like a couple of cases of people surviving. I mean, they stayed in the hospital for like six months, but at yeah. least they survived. Um, but in the F-111, that was, not a, that, that was not a factor. You were fine. And one of the memorable things, souvenirs I have is the squadron exchange with the Belgian Air Force at uh, Florence Air Base in, in, uh, in Belgium. And they were flying Mirage 5s at the time. Later on, they transitioned to the F-16, but that's the second wing at, at Florence. And we we brought a few F-111s there for about two weeks, I think it was. Uh, and we flew in Belgium on the ranges and flying low altitude. And as part of that exchange, I got to fly in the backseat of a Mirage 5 for one nice. flight, which was very enjoyable. So it's, uh, you know, it was backseat, but I still got to plenty of stick time. Uh, and uh, that was a very interesting aircraft. It had very basic systems, mm-hmm. uh, almost nothing. Uh, so it was very <laughs> visual only very fast aircraft um in the pattern it was much faster than the f-111 because the f-111 you know big airplane but with the wings forward you you were actually very reasonable approach speeds you know on landing and things like that um but uh, the mirage 5 had much higher approach speeds and landing speeds because of the delta wing mm-hmm. and um yeah, that was those. These were great, great times. The Belgians were fantastic. Uh, obviously, they were they had flying rules that were a little bit more lax than ours. <laughs> they would do things for which we probably would have been uh, probably not court martial, but uh, got into severe trouble anyway. And for them, it was like no big deal. Okay, but uh, so with it. <laughs> it was. And of course, because I spoke French, and Florence is in the French-speaking part of Belgium, you know, I was very popular there because, of, you know, because I spoke their language. So. Absolutely. But it sounds like you've had a great time on the F-111. But you said you just missed your thousand-hour patch, didn't you? Yes. Yes. Just. <laughs> I, I had like nine hundred and seventy-five hours. Oh, that's so close. <laughs> yes, it was very good. So I broke my finger in 1983 while skiing. Uh, this and. I had a cast on for a while, you know, and then there was a little bit of rehab. So I think it was about six weeks I couldn't fly. Mm -hmm. And that probably would have made the difference. Yes, definitely.